turn to Ruth chapter 4. It all ends today. Shout out to Lori Kratzer, who's been teaching Sunday school since September 13th, I think. I think Anna Burhau covered for her one week, but besides that, Lori's been lesson planning and teaching for a couple months straight, which means no teaching. It is a sacrifice, um, which means she can't sit in on this teaching, that is. And so it's a sacrifice. Shout out to Lev for doing the 6th through 8th grade Sunday school the last few weeks, uh, which I especially appreciate. Shout out to Lev for building that nursery in a matter of weeks so that people like my wife can sit in on the teaching. Shout out to my wife who hasn't been able to sit in on the teaching for two months because her husband hasn't been here to help her with the two little ones. So lots to be thankful for. Thank you Cunninghams for that music this morning. It was wonderful. Okay. God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. Imagine you are a politically active person. It's a dangerous opening line. Imagine you're a politically active person. For some of you, this is a stretch. Others of you probably wish it were more of a stretch. But uh, no need to worry. I don't want you to imagine you're politically active now. I want you to imagine you were politically active as a Jew living in Judah around 1000 B.C. The king of Judah at around 1000 B.C. is David. Saul is dead. David has taken his throne, but not in all of Israel, just in Judah. If you recall, the king in the rest of Israel is Saul's son, Ishbosheth. So the kingdom's divided. There's a lot of debate about who is the rightful leader of God's people, Ishbosheth or David. The argument for Ishbosheth is easy enough. He's the son of the previous king, Saul, who's now dead. The argument for David was both his track record as a leader and that he had been clearly appointed king by God. You remember Hopefully the details of this account are, are filling your mind. We like those arguments, but there's a counter-argument to that if you're living in 1000 BC. The counter-argument is this. David's lineage is inferior to Saul's lineage because David's lineage was surely Canaanized during the time of the judges. Canaanized meaning like so many other families during the time of the judges. David's ancestors probably abandoned the one true God for Canaanite gods. And so his history is stained. They probably abandoned their, abandoned their Jewish heritage and adopted a form of paganism. So the sins of his forefathers are haunting him, if that is true. He's not the rightful king of Israel. He isn't even the rightful king of Judah. So how could you possibly choose him over Saul's very son? How do you respond to that, you politically active Israelite in 10,000 B.C.? You could cite David's upright character, but the argument isn't really about David's character. It's about his lineage. How do you make a solid case that David's lineage is not stained with canonization, but is instead full of God's sovereign working? How do you make the case that his lineage is actually superior to Saul's lineage, full of faithfulness to Israel and Israel's God, and not full of backslidden Jews? The answer is the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Let's pray before we read all of chapter 4. Father, our, our prayer this morning as a group of believers, again, is that what I communicate would be faithful to the teaching of your word, that you would be pleased, with, uh, pleased by the words of my mouth and the meditations in all of our hearts. 
save us from distractions that might take us away from Ruth chapter 4, the whole book of Ruth really, as we seek to conclude our journey through this important part of Scripture. We submit ourselves not to the teachings of the world, of the world, but to the teachings of the Bible and trust that you will be pleased with that and that you will help us this morning as we do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The last chapter of Ruth chapter 3 says, Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will, redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who's not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. What are you responsible for? You remember this question? This is where we ended last week. We worked through chapter 3. Too fast, arguably. 
Wasn't much time to synthesize at the end, but the one thing I encourage you to consider was responsibility. What are you responsible for? What has God put on your plate? How did we get to that question? Well, our journey began with famine, pain, heartache in Ruth chapter 1. Devastation in the life of Naomi that we understand, we cannot possibly understand experientially, even if, like Naomi, you've lost your spouse and all of your children which isn't true of most of us, thankfully. Even if that's true, none of us, by virtue of the era in which we live, can understand the hopelessness of her economic situation. We simply can't. Our world is a world of immense economic security. Our nation, I should say. Certainly not that way everywhere in the world. In our nation, even the poorest among us have many ways to to seek help. But even though we can't really empathize with Naomi in that way, we can understand the absolutely essential and foundational truth in Naomi's life, the truth that I argued the writer of the book makes clear in the way he frames the conflict of the book and the way he shows us Naomi's response to that conflict, which is that God fills and God empties. He's sovereign, not just in the God controls the epic flow of history sort of way. Of course, that's true but in a much more intimate way. God controls your circumstances. He is responsible for the blessings and therefore responsible when the blessings are taken away, the tragedies that exist in your daily life. Because of that truth, suffering can have meaning. Death and destitution can have purpose, as paradoxical as that sounds. Circumstance that you may have to endure, you don't endure alone, and you don't endure without the loving purpose of God. Now, perhaps more importantly, more importantly to the case I'm making in Ruth, the sovereignty of God doesn't just give meaning to suffering, it gives meaning to everyday faithfulness. As we went from chapter 1 to chapter 2, we saw the writer switches gears. He still nods to God's sovereignty. You remember how Ruth ended up in Boaz's field? Chapter 2, verse 3, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. That's a nod to God's sovereignty, for sure. But the emphasis of chapter 2 is really on the way in which Ruth and Boaz simply do the next thing and do the right thing. They don't try to save the day. They don't take matters into their own hands. They simply wake up and do what's next. For Ruth, that's the hard work of gleaning, so she and Naomi can eat. For Boaz, it's the kind and generous management of his property and the workers on his property. So Ruth does work hard, and Boaz is kind and generous. And in this way, they model for us focused, distraction-free, humble, everyday faithfulness. As we ended chapter 2, we highlighted verse 20, an ambiguous but very important verse. I said the most important verse in the whole book in terms of interpreting, especially the second half of the book. The verse showed us, I think, that Naomi is finally able to see past her despair and let the working hand of God shine into her darkness. In doing so, she is emotionally... Reborn. Hope is rekindled. Her commitment to doing what's next in her own life, which she had not been doing, was re-energized. And then in chapter 3, we see all three of our main characters on stage in what is really the climactic scene of the narrative. So, the book of Ruth, structured like a play. Four scenes, four chapters. Naomi and Ruth on stage in chapter 1. Ruth and Boaz on stage in chapter 2. Boaz alone, really, on stage in chapter 4. But in scene three, all three of them at their absolute best, making difficult decisions, sometimes split-second decisions, but they're showcasing their commitment to doing what God has put before them to do. Naomi encourages Ruth, take the next step in her relationship with Boaz, which she believes God has clearly opened the door for, and she's right about that. For Ruth, it means autonomously deciding 
Naomi's suggestion is aligned with God's will for her. This is what's on her plate. She implements it with courage and with care. For Boaz, it means being an absolute boss of a man by accepting Ruth's proposal, which is the selfless thing to do, believe it or not, in the situation, and then ensuring her physical and social and moral safety by protecting her after their meeting. And so our question, as we read chapter 3, is really how do we become like that? How do we become people like that? How do we follow their example? How do we know the difference, more specifically, between seizing God-given opportunities that are on our plate and forcing our hand or manipulating circumstances to suit what we think should happen? And the answer has to do with responsibility. The things you are responsible for are the things that you need to pursue. They are the things that should be taking up your mental space. Doing those things is doing the next thing, which is a truth we need very badly because we are so doggone distracted all the time. This is the era of distraction. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of things fighting for your time and your efforts and your mental space. And I'm not even talking about the bad things trying to take your time. I'm talking about the other good things. The hardest part about applying the truths in this book is that the biggest threat in your life to the everyday faithfulness that God's called you to is not the bad things, but the other good things. Imagine this scenario. Ruth wakes up at the beginning of chapter 2, and she tells Naomi, I know we have to glean, but I had a good conversation with Jane down the road yesterday. I feel like she could really use some ministry today, someone to talk to. I feel like I should go spend the morning with her. I'll try to fit in the gleaning this afternoon. What is wrong with that scenario? Ruth is being selfless, ministry-minded. Those are good things. Of course, they're good things. The problem with the scenario is that Ruth is asking the wrong question. She woke up and asked herself, Lord, who could I minister to today? And I'm arguing that that's the wrong question. The list of people you could minister to is endless. The better question, I think, is, Lord, who am I responsible for ministering to today? Ruth was not responsible for Jane. She was responsible for Naomi. Ministering to Jane is good, but not if it distracts Ruth from her clearly God-given responsibility of taking care of Naomi. Another scenario. This one I call burnt-out Boaz. Thank you. I knew you were going to laugh at that, KT. If no one else, and pretty much no one else did, but KT did. (laughs) Boaz wakes up at the beginning of chapter 2. Doesn't have time to ask the Lord what the next thing is because he has early morning prayer with a friend, followed by coffee and breakfast with the guy he's discipling, then morning Bible study with a couple of neighbors, then an elders meeting over lunch. He planned to stop by his property to make sure everything was going fine, but didn't have time because he had to go home and prepare his sermon for church on Sunday. Some mixed historical things going on here. After after a couple hours of that, he does some counseling with a couple of struggling young people. On his way home from that, he stops by his farm, asks the foreman how the day has gone. The foreman says, did you notice the new girl as you were walking by, as you were coming in? And Boaz says, you know, it's been a heck of a day and my brain is fried. Didn't notice anything. Grabs a slice of bread, heads off to the evening Bible study he's leading. You see what I'm getting at? That was maybe too long to make the point, but you get the point. It could very well be true. The hardest part about applying what we're learning in Ruth is that the biggest threat in your life to the everyday faithfulness God has called you to is not the bad things, but the other good things. The reason you should not ask yourself, what good ministries could I be spending my time on, 
is because there are a trillion good ministries that you could be spending your time on. There's no shortage of people. Every one of us has needs. Every one of us could use ministry pretty much every minute of every day. There's no shortage of organized ministries you could be involved in. In terms of focusing your responsibilities and remaining distraction-free, the question is unhelpful. So instead, ask God, what ministry have you made me responsible for? today, which is a much easier question to answer. I can answer it for you, most of you, meaning all of you, pretty much. First, you are responsible to minister to yourself through the reading of God's word and prayer. You don't get to decide what kind of ministry you need, unfortunately. So you don't need the ministry of Netflix or Pinterest or a latte, despite my love of two out of those three things. You need the ministry of God's word and prayer. That's number one. Number two, you're responsible to minister to your family, your spouse, your children, your extended family, which is an important one because it is uh, an exclusive responsibility, meaning no one can pinch hit for you. You're the only spouse to your wife or husband. You're the only parents to your children. You are the only oldest daughter to your parents. Single or married, living alone, living with people, you're responsible for a role in a family. If you get distracted from that responsibility, Bad things happen long term because no one's filling in for you. Or if they are, they're not doing it the way you could do it. Third, you are probably responsible for doing a job God has given you to do. Maybe it's full-time employment. Maybe it's as a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're a student, somewhere in between one of those. But it's your job, and you're the only one who has that job. Now, those three responsibilities alone, without anything else, are incredibly important time-consuming responsibilities, and they're the responsibilities that make up the everyday faithfulness of normal people. And the vast majority of the time, they just aren't that exciting. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes Eliza poops in the potty. Those are exciting days <laughs> in the Carter house. Sometimes the girls don't spill their milk cup, which is leak-free unless you drop it from four feet, in which case it's like all that pressure that's been bottled up <laughs> lets loose. Most of the time, these everyday things are not exciting or glorious. So, I'm a teacher. Sometimes I go to work and I ask myself, how could I minister to my students or students today? I, here's how I fall into the trap. My mind immediately, as I ask that question, jumps to relatively exciting things, like meeting with a student one-on-one, -on -one, taking them to coffee, sending a personal note, speaking in floor chapel, joining an intramural, all good things, but all secondary things right? Secondary to my clear God-given responsibility, which is not to do any of those things. It is to teach them. My primary ministry to my students is classroom teaching, not that other stuff. And that other stuff is good and fine, but the danger is that I do too much of that other stuff and then compromise the primary ministry, right? And the danger is I think we just, in our minds, skip past what's right there to things that tend to be more exciting. Students, you might ask yourself, what's the best way to minister to my teacher? Maybe you ask yourself this. <laughs> Overly optimistic, maybe. So I'm saying it's not sending us a note or you buying us coffee or telling us how much you love and appreciate us, assuming that's true. The primary way to minister to us is to do your work well. Be a good student. I don't know. I'm trying to find other teachers in the room. Can someone amen this? I would, I would a thousand times more have you put your, put your mind to the work, then tell me I'm a good teacher or buy me a coffee or something like that. Parents, 
your primary ministry is not discipling other parents, but parenting your own children. Husbands, our primary responsibility is not helping other husbands serve their wives, but being a good husband to our wives. Do what is before you, is the point. There will always be people and families that could use your help. There will always be jobs that need to be done. There will even always be things that you could do better than whoever is doing them. Things that if you did them, they would minister to more people. You'd be utilizing your gift to the benefit of the body. It's true in some cases, right? Not everybody's equally good at everything, of course. Some people are better than other people. There are things you would do better than fill in the blank. But you're not primarily responsible for those things. This is why I think, for example, in qualifications for elders, it says you have to manage your household well, right? The implication is church is secondary. And if you can't do the primary one well, there's no chance you're going to be able to do the secondary one well. Or if you do, it'll be at the expense of the primary. So you want to be used by God. You want to be part of his sovereign plans of redemption. Be the kind of person God says, I can use. Do the everyday things faithfully, even when they're boring and mundane. And when you do, what you get is something like Ruth chapter 4. Now you're thinking, Joel made it look like his introduction was much shorter today. But now I realize that this whole thing has really been the introduction. You're going to be just fine. Okay. Plus, hey, we started 10 minutes late, you clock watchers. So thank you. Thank you. Ruth chapter 4 is what you get when you do this right. God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. So today we're developing the last phrase of that message statement. God's sovereign plans of redemption. Plans in plural. We tend to think of God's plan of redemption in the singular. The reality is God uses everyday faithfulness in more than just one overarching way. There's more than just one overarching redemption story. There's many. They're interrelated. God weaves them together, but he has a lot of them. And we see in chapter four, three, three layers, if you will, of redemptive storytelling. So he's using the boring and mundane, but faithful actions of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi to carry out his plan in Naomi's life, to carry out his plan in the nation of Israel as a whole, to carry out his plan in the redemption of all creation. So let's look at each of these three. I'll restate those when we get there. First, this is the one we talked most about because it's what the chapter is mostly about. Redemption in Naomi's life. The main conflict of the book, chapter 1, verse 5. This woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The conflict is solved in chapter 4. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi, which is really an interesting and arguably weird thing to say, given that that is not literally true. The son was not born to Naomi. The son was born to Ruth, right? But the writer's making clear, he made clear at the very beginning, this book is about Naomi. The conflict is about Naomi. So here we are, and the emphasis is on how this child solves the conflict in Naomi's life. Ruth is pretty much nowhere to be seen. Chapter 3, Ruth rocks it out, Ruth rocks it out, and she walks off stage. We don't get much more of her. Boaz, on the other hand, like the boss of a man that he is, continues in chapter 4 to do what's next, to do what's right. In verses 1 through 6, he does the legally appropriate thing, offers the role of redemption to the one relative of Naomi's who is closer than Boaz is. Now, the whole marrying a relative thing, weird. Strange. Yes. 
You might remember uh, Leveret marriage. Ring any bells? Maybe, possibly, from the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What we're seeing here are the principles of that law at play. Okay, just the principles. The practical aspects are different. Okay, so the principle is, and we're going to read, we're going to read one in a minute. The principle is that the family name of a of a dead person needs to be propagated or carried on. We don't care about this. I mean, compared to this culture, we care about this not at all. People ask me if I if I want a son. I have two girls. Do I want a son? Where? I mean, maybe. It just doesn't mean anything to me to pass on the Carter name. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe it should mean more to me. Anyway, cultures are different. It meant a lot. It meant a lot. The name of the deceased needs to be carried on. Leveret marriage required. If a man dies, his brother is responsible for taking the deceased's wife and having children to carry on the name of the dead brother. Having a son, really. The son would carry on his dad's name, name even though his dad has died. Now, this context does not fit that bill very exactly because there's no brother. Elimelech's brother is not on the scene, which means that no one is bound by the law to the responsibility. So the letter of the law does not require Boaz to do anything, in other words. And the letter of the law does not require this other guy who's closer to do anything. Not required. That said, the spirit of the law still exists. And so we see, I mean, it's the, back, it's the context of the whole book of Ruth that this whole redemption thing, relative thing, still happens, okay? Uh, we see it most vividly in this chapter, obviously. Still very much a part of their culture and has kind of trickled down and changed a bit as time has passed. It's been a while since the law was written, okay? So, turn to Deuteronomy 25. There's multiple passages, two in Deuteronomy, one in Leviticus. We'll just read five verses, six verses from Deuteronomy 25. This is verses five through 10. It's not complicated. It's easy to understand. I think reading it will be helpful. Deuteronomy 25, verse five. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, there's something I forgot to mention, and has no son, the wife of the dead, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. In other words, if his, if his, his name is obviously different, it's, it's almost literally as if the deceased brother is the father of this child, right? That's the name that sticks. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders, and this looks similar to Ruth chapter 4, but not exactly, and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not, he will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him, Speak to him if he persists, saying, I don't want to take her. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. She shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off, with demeaning connotations there. Okay? So, you see there's some parallels, like the sandal being pulled off, we read in Ruth 4. So, Joe studied this, this specific exegetical issue for me over the summer as we were preparing for this series. Here's one of her concluding statements, which she summarized from a book by Donald Leggett on this specific issue, as in this one issue in the whole book of Ruth. The book's like that thick. This is what nerds do for a living. 
we, so these are Joe's words, we have in Ruth a real-life application of the law set out in Deuteronomy. It does not contradict Deuteronomy, but reflects a more complex situation than is set out in Deuteronomy. The Goel, which is the Hebrew word for redeemer, which is Boaz, marrying Ruth is an application of the law that goes beyond the letter of the law, but captures the spirit of the law and the emphasis that the law puts on compassion and love for others. So the letter of the law does not require redemption from anybody in this situation because there's no brother and the purchase of land is involved, which makes it a little bit more complex as well, which is why the closer relative does not get a spit in the face when he passes on redeeming Elimelech's name. Okay? In fact, I would argue, I would agree with commentators who say that that closer relative is really doing nothing wrong. You could read selfishness into there. He says, I can't do that because it would inflict upon my inheritance, which you could read as selfish, but I don't think it is. I think he simply cannot afford economically to purchase the land, which costs a chunk of change, take care of Naomi and Ruth, which also will cost a chunk of change, only to hand the land over to Ruth's son the moment the son's born, which means, which means all that cost is lost right because it all goes the property value will go to the son the losses would be too great for him to take care of his primary responsibility which is his own land and family so that's interpretive we don't see motive i think that's what's going on be a berean as god would have it boaz can step in and get the job done which he does in verses 7 through 12. then after in the concluding paragraph as we said earlier the writer makes clear that this is really all about naomi boaz and ruth have a son but that son is seen as a blessing primarily to naomi boaz and ruth actually it looks it looks like they actually give it doesn't look like a legal adoption transaction, but they give primary care of their son to Naomi. So it appears Naomi gets to raise Obed as if he were her own son, which just really completes the whole redemption conflict resolution picture beautifully and perfectly, right? In a matter of probably a little over a year, if even that much, if even that much, Naomi goes from two sons and daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law, to no sons, no future, to having a grandson who now literally fills the void in her life because he's coming into her house, right? He's under her care. She actually gets to raise this boy. So that's what we call a sovereign plan of redemption, ladies and gentlemen. You want to be part of a redemption plan like that? You do everyday things faithfully, even when they're boring and mundane, like going to glean. Now, doesn't end there. Second layer of redemption is seen in the way that the writer ties Obed to David, thus fulfilling one of the purposes for which this book was written, which we alluded to in the opening. God not only uses the everyday faithfulness of these people to redeem Naomi, but he does so to redeem Israel as a nation. Again, not, not eternal salvation redemption, you understand. Physical, a physical type of redemption. Obed will go on to be the grandfather of Israel's greatest and ideal king. The king who would redeem Israel in countless ways because he's a man after God's own heart, right? So the ending sticks it to anyone any of those politically engaged people who are claiming that David's lineage is marred by Canaanite paganism. On the contrary, the book makes clear David's lineage included extraordinary faithfulness of people who lived in a time when everyone else in Israel 
was being faithless, generally speaking. The era of the judges mostly characterized by God's people doing what's right in their own eyes. Ruth and Boaz do what's right in God's eyes. That's faithfulness that's used by God to give birth to Israel's mightiest king. So there's another layer, right? You want to be a part of it? Do everyday, mundane, boring things. Doesn't end there. The third layer of redemption is seen in the way that the book is now for us, the original, the original readers or listeners would not have had this benefit, but now we know Ruth's name is mentioned elsewhere in scripture only once. Does anyone know where it's at? A massive risk providing the wrong answer, I understand. Matthew chapter one, that's right, Mike. Matthew chapter one, verse five. Matthew opens his gospel, which is written to a Jewish audience with the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Who shows up? But this everyday Moabite woman from the book of Ruth, God uses her faithfulness to redeem Naomi, to redeem the nation of Israel through David's kingship and all of the restoration that happens as a result. And he uses it in his plan to redeem all of creation through the physical life of his son and the ultimate redeemer, capital R, Jesus Christ, who can rightfully serve as our final example of what it looks like to do what God has given you to do faithfully, even when it's boring and mundane. Consider Christ's life, certainly chock full of exciting stories, healings, miracles, resurrection, but it's also full of everyday faithfulness. What was he doing for the first 30 years of his life? Now, it, he could very well have done a miraculous thing here and there, right? We're not boxing him in. It is clear he did not do nearly enough of those miraculous things to make him the superstar preacher that he became when he really kicked it into high gear in his public ministry. So I submit to you that in those years, he was doing the work God gave him to do. He was learning. He was working. He was growing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, Luke 2.52. In other words, the everyday stuff, reading the Bible, the scriptures, studying the scriptures, fellowshipping with his father in prayer, eating meals, doing homework, getting a job, paying the bills, taking care of his mom. And just like us, you better believe there was temptation for him to be distracted. I mean, you can... You can just hear, or I can in my sanctified imagination anyway, Satan saying, listen, Jesus, you're 28, you're ready. There's countless people dying around here. They're sick, they're disabled, they're demon-possessed. Why not just help a few of them? Just a few, not enough to, you know, speed up this whole plan God has for you, but just a few. You don't need to go off and pray on your own today. Do the stuff that's really going to make an impact, even during his ministry. People are sick everywhere. Jesus heals a lot of them, but not all of them. Jesus walked by many sick people and left them sick. You can hear Satan saying, listen, prayer time, morning prayer time, really? There's 20 other people you could, you could heal. They would probably believe you, believe in you if you healed them. Get on with the stuff that matters. Ignore the boring stuff. The temptation is the same, but Jesus stays focused. He doesn't get distracted. He has a mission to do. His primary responsibility is before him. Naomi says at the end of chapter 3 of Boaz, don't worry, Ruth, he'll get the job done. So we say of Jesus, who is the pioneer in everyday faithful living, thank you for staying focused and getting the job done. So you want to be part of a story of redemption, God's plan of redemption, then like Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, David, Jesus, do the everyday things even when they're boring and mundane, especially when they're boring and mundane because that's what God, that's what God is going to use. Let's pray. Father, there is 
No doubt. We are entirely dependent on you for help, strength, guidance. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the way it points us to Christ, as all of your redemption stories do. Thank you for his example of everyday faithfulness. Uh, please, we pray, make clear, to, make clear to us what our primary responsibilities are, what the next thing is for each of us to do. Give us the strength and the focus needed to do that next thing, to be faithful as Christ was faithful. We look to him, we thank you for him, and we, we ask this in his name. Amen.